A good reviewer would do that. Yes. I mean, some reviewers are, it seems can be primarily just, you know, box checking, you know, have take less of a holistic um, risk-based approach, which is kind of the, has, has been the trend for some time now. I try to focus on, you know, what is actually important for this particular product and has that been uh, explored appropriately? Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to CMC Live. This is the start of the NFL season tonight. Is it Titans? No. Chiefs and Texans. Anyway, Brian, who do you have? Oh, it's clearly the Chiefs. Chiefs, yeah. Until somebody knocks them off, it's the Chiefs. Yeah. Yeah, my son's a huge Chiefs fan. How about you, Miranda? Raiders? No. Oh, okay. no. You're one of those. Hey, I'm not any All of right. those. That's just what my dad liked. So, yeah, this is a September 10th edition. So today we have Kyriakos Mikolaris on the show. We call him Q. He's not the Q from the Bond films, by the way. Um, he's a drug product subject matter expert, uh, solid oral doses, control releases, inhaled products. He's worked on creams, ointments, liquids, tablet formulations of all sorts. 20 years of experience supporting CMO selections. He's been involved with due diligence, process validation efforts, protocols. He's been a man in the plant, person in the plant these days. He holds an MBA in management, undergraduate chemistry from Lehigh University, and he's also very fluent in Greek, apparently. On today's podcast, we'll talk about product development reports, and we'll go over timing, and the content, and also some trends in drug product manufacturing in these times of COVID. So Q, let's get this episode started by going into some of your background, how, how you got started, and get your thoughts. Well, how, how did I get started? I, uh, I loved science uh, from the beginning. Um, I was always uh, a geek and interested in the basic sciences, and uh, going into college, it seemed like, uh, you know, to go to major in chemistry or physics, you, you kind of have to go all the way. Um, get a PhD. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go that far um, right off the bat, make that kind of commitment. So I made a compromise and went into chemical engineering, which, uh, you know, is still pretty, pretty science heavy, but uh, I thought it would give me good job prospects coming out of college. Uh, and sure enough, um, you know, I got, a, I got a job working in pharma right out of college and uh, I never looked back. It's been uh, over 20, 21 years now. Q. Given the background and the breadth of experience that you have, I had a question. I wanted to know in your mind, knowing some of the clients we have and some of the work you've done, in your mind, what would you say is an appropriate timing for a development report? And just really, is it, when is it too early? Is it too late? Is it ever too early or late? In your opinion, when is it a good time to start capturing development decisions experiments, things like that? Uh, that's a great question. I think the approach that uh, is becoming more and more common these days to basically start off immediately and have it be a working document is, is helpful. It saves time. It, it helps a development program sort of have a reference point to see where they stand, um, what is left to be done, and uh, you know summarize the work done so far. As far as too late, I mean, Ideally, uh, you know, you, I think a development report should be in some 
close to final state at the time of regulatory filing, at the time of, uh, you know, NDA filing or uh, ANDA filing, but it's not absolutely necessary. You know, we've worked on many submissions where the source documents, the data that went into the submission was in uh, source documents. And, you know, you, you have to go there and dig them out. It's a little bit more labor and time intensive. And, you know, you, you have lingering questions as to whether or not there was something, some aspect of development that wasn't captured, uh, some document that, you know, isn't in the files shared by the client that you're working with uh, on a submission. I, I think, you know, it's, it's never too early. And, um, you know, ideally, you want to have the story of the development program pretty much summarized by the time you're making an NDA submission. So let me, if you could expand on that a minute. So that's that's the regulatory piece and what feeds into a comprehensive filing in the development sections. What about on the manufacturing floor? So you've got a process that starts off at a at a bench scale or, or a very small pilot scale, and now you're progressing through, you know, I've heard arguments say, well, we're not GMP yet, so we don't really need to have any sort of record of our, our product development. But at some point, they intend to be that way. So aside from the regulatory benefits of having that, what about on the production side as you move through and ultimately up to validation and CQAs and things like that? Well, I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with the argument that uh, you don't have to summarize non-GMP work because what the development report and the submission eventually uh, are intended to do is tell the story of the of the product development. So even though non-GMP batches, you know, may have not have been used, may have not have been evaluated in humans, may have not have gone to clinic, many formulation and process development decisions are based off those non-GMP pilot scale batches. Uh, those quick and dirty batches often determine uh, what excipients you're going to use in your formulation. They determine you know, if you're if you're making a tablet that uh, uses a granulation, what way, which which method you're going to use for granulation, roller compaction versus, you know, for example, fluid bed granulation or something like that. Despite not being GMP, I mean, those those non that non GMP work steers the program, and for that reason, should be captured in in a development report. Fantastic. So would you say that having at least that understanding, obviously there's there's advantages to having it under one roof and one report, but as you move into validation, creation of the protocol, things like that, do you often go back and refer to that? Or is it because, or is there a delineation between at what point we stop looking back at the past? How does that, how does the, the content of that work its way into validation? I think what the point of, at the point of validation, you're essentially demonstrating the repeatability and reproducibility of your commercial process. What you're demonstrating it's uh, reproducible relative to is your registration batches, which may have not been at commercial scale. It's very common to you know do a, a SUPAC scale up after submission uh, and before validation. So the the validations are going to be showing equivalence in process to your registration batches, and your registration batches are going to be the primary uh, reference points, reference endpoints in your in your development report. Once validation is complete, you're generally going to be referencing back to the validation batches. But up to the validation, what you're what you're trying to reproduce are your registration batches. So, Q, I just realized like two years ago, I wrote this blog. It's still on our website. If you just found it, it's called "Hey Google, Tell Me About the Importance of Living Development Reports." 
So can you talk to a little bit why, you know, to, to the points why your development report should be a living document, update it? It just saves a lot of time. You know, by by having your your development data and conclusions automatically downloaded to a common document, even if it's not necessarily formatted for flow and such, what you do have is one place that has all of the critical information upon which you're basing your development program. And then you can go back and if it's time, if you're having like a, a meeting with the FDA or you're planning some sort of filing, you know where to find all of your information, all of the relevant information that you, you know, have, have based your development decisions on. So it really saves a lot of time. It makes it easier for everyone to know where all of the develop all of the relevant development information is. So your understanding of the requirements enables you to to ensure that the pro you know the project contains all the needed elements for success. So that's that's great. And then to go one step further, you said something that had me pause. I don't know many development programs that have been complete successes at every everything they've tried to explore, every every avenue in, in process improvement, process development. How do you handle those things that necessarily didn't work? You know what I mean? You're looking at maybe, um, I don't know, um, ceiling pressures, whatever. How do, you, how do you capture that information? Or is it just wasn't done, move on? Well, I mean, but a development program, a, a good development program is going to do risk assessments at certain points along the way and assess for the indication that we're going for, for the dosage form we're trying to make, what are the major concerns associated with uh, developing this drug product, for for example, there's 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 trends in in the industry towards going to direct compression of formulations for tablets, where basically a bunch of powders are blended and then they're just discharged and run on run on a press to make tablets, as opposed to uh, a granulation process where all the powders are granulated together to make a different intermediate material. So so for a direct compression formulation, the main the main concern for a potent product would be demixing content uniformity and so forth as long as the as the primary areas of risk are covered and have been appropriately characterized namely if you can demonstrate that your mixing process appropriately mixes your powders and they don't demix during discharge and compression and you know across the compression run by you know doing stratified content uniformity uh, you you've addressed a major concern for that drug product if a, if another if it's for example a chewable tablet you know hardness is going to be a major concern uh, so you're going to want to evaluate the hardness of the tablets but if for example there's some uh, data point that you've got along your development program that um, was out of the ordinary or was unexpected but it may not have relevance to the quality of the drug product you know at that point you, it's typically a business decision as to whether or not you want to spend the money to maybe get an answer, maybe get somewhat of an answer. But oftentimes, if the major risks are covered, you know that's that's the most important thing. And and assuming that all the other regulatory requirements are being met, you you can simply move on by assessing the, what the risks are and making sure that those are covered. And if something's not critical, it can be you know delayed for later or a business decision or you can make a business decision as to whether or not to pursue it. That's a good point. So one of the things that we've had a call for with clients or we'll have a client come in and they'll they'll acquire a product. And let's say they're looking at at 
multiple strengths and and this product's been around forever and they consider it to be a, a slam dunk so to speak but then they start to run into issues as they start experimenting with strengths and and say content uniformity things like that you go back to the development report what do you look for in a comprehensive development report because you know we're talking about this now i think the importance of development reports has become relevant in the last few years, but in the past it was, well, this person developed here, then it stayed in their notebooks. And then this one went over here and they never really talked to each other. So I think, you know, the client, this was about four years ago where, uh, their, their weaker strength had, had issues, had CU issues. And when you go back and look at that development, how can you tell if, if it does check all the boxes or if you do have to do additional experiment? Again, this goes, this goes back to what are the major risks uh, associated with the drug product you're developing and and the formulation. So in the example of, you know, you're making a common granulation of active that's then being used in a tablet formulation at different levels to produce different tablet strengths. The one variable you have among your tablet strengths is the amount of is the amount of active that goes in them. So in in a situation like that, it's important to See, why would the lower strength, for example, be having issues where the others don't? In any situation where you're mixing powders and then compressing them, you, you, have the, you run the risk of demixing. So in a situation like that, you know, what, what you would do is, what I would do is do sieve analysis on the powder blend, from the powder blend of the, of the granulated active uh, subcomponent and on the, uh, the, the overall formulation. What that will tell you is... If you have a difference in concentration of active at different particle sizes of your particles, the reason why that's important is because particles tend to demix and segregate based on size. So at that point, if you know that my fine particles are rich in active and my coarse particles have less active, what you want to do is ensure that your fine particles are, are continuously mixed. Are, are appropriately mixed in the, in the formulation, and that's notoriously difficult to do. Fine particles are known to, to demix. So by knowing that, okay, th this, this powder that I'm compressing, it's not, it, it, it may be uniform in terms of its, its, its content, but among the particles inside, the, inside the, uh, the powder blend, they vary according to size and concentration. At that point, you can, you can, you've diagnosed your problem and maybe you have to take additional precautions, for example, you know, another granulation step or uh, fine-tuning your final blending process to make sure your portion of your particles that are rich in active or you know, the opposite are maintain uniformity throughout your compression process. See, I think it's important because this is a prime example where you had early development history, but you didn't quite understand the dosage forms that it was going to wind up becoming. Like that, that, that strength that we talk about was added late and then ultimately taken away. So we have had call where clients are still determining their dosage form, right? That they don't quite know which way they want to go. They're dealing with the clinic and marketing and how they want to handle it. So when you look at a development program, before that final decision made is made, are there standard box checks you look for for completeness where you would advise a client, look, understanding that the final dosage form isn't decided, at a minimum, you want to look at A, B, C? Yeah. I mean, for any potent compound or for any compound where the active is uh, 
for any drug product where the activists say let's less than roughly five or ten percent of the formulation let's say f- r- less than five percent of the formulation uh uniformity and demixing is going to be uh, a concern especially if it's not granulated this goes back to the the product specific aspect of you know a- approach to taking to development for for that type of product, you're want, you're going to want to look very closely at uniformity and make sure that uh, appropriate characterization has been done around the blending, the discharge of the blend, and the compression process, and you know stratified content across the compression run to show that um, you know you're not getting segregation during discharge of your blender into your press. Another example would be, for example, uh, BCS class three or four compounds that you know may not be so uh, soluble or so uh, permeable through, you know, gastric membranes. For a product like that, your main concern is going to be dissolution, disintegration. For a product like that that falls into that BCS class, you're going to want to look very closely at development of the dissolution method and the dissolution data at all stages of development to show, to to know that your your dissolution isn't changing um, across scales and that you have it appropriately characterized. Okay, that's that was pretty technical. So I'm tr- I'm processing that. I'm not a drug product person. I I wanted to bring it back to something regulatory, which I used to be, and applying you know um, drug development report information into a into a module three documentation is very important. It's often overlooked at the uh, outside of a project because of the misconception that you don't need to to write things down. You don't need to bring in writers until you're ready to to write your NDA. And I think that mis- that thinking is a mistake. You're probably a great right. So, um, you know, your experiences with companies that use disciplined, systematic approaches from the beginning, you know, they use product doc- project documentation to drive their approach, their strategy, you know, their story. Can you talk about maybe some efficiencies, cost effectiveness that, that comes through that uh, versus companies who don't, some mistakes that you've seen? Well, actually, the norm is to not, you know, have technical writers involved from early in the process. Normally, what we get is a, a jumble of, uh, somewhat organized or some somewhat disorganized reports that may or may not be complete. Um, and from that, we're, we're usually, you know, as, as, a, as a CMC consultant, we're usually tax, tasked with piecing together the development story with that, in, with, with those documents, and, you know, circling back uh, with our clients to ensure that what we have is complete and, uh, and, and so forth. If you're, if you're taking the approach of using a working document and just keeping everything in one place by simply doing that you're building an efficiency into your development program you're you're keeping everything organized and uh, it's easy to know what what's been done what the data upon which decisions have been based is and what's missing um, because you know it's easy to reference you know the, the CMC the the ECTD outline rel- re- relative to your documentation and see what's missing. Okay, so going back to that succinctness of documentation and being consistent from the beginning kind of uh, emphasizes what you just mentioned there, uh, cost and time savings, you know, in the end, we, we wind up going back and rewriting things and, you know, that takes time to, to do that and cost money, so... I, th- I think for, for me, uh, a Monty Python line and now for something completely different, but, but there's the regulatory aspect, but let's say some of our clients, their main goal is to take a product so far and sell it where they, they, it may not be that filing. However, the due diligence part uh, portion of this is, is this a fileable project? Is it because the new partner may t- is, intends to take it on and file? So in a sense of 
let's say that's the goal. Let's say the client says, I'm going to take this so far past the IND, and then we're going to shop this to someone else. Do you really need that development report? Yeah. I mean, otherwise you're, you're leaving, you're making the due diligence process um, more difficult and without, without a, a central repository for all of the information, like I, like I said before, the acquiring party is going to, is going to have questions as to what's been done is what I'm looking at complete, you know, questions can arise as to, you know, this was done here, but I'm not sure why I'm not sure what the, what the rationale was. In, in those situations, I, I mean, I, th- I think it's actually more important in a situation like that where you don't want to take a project all the way t- to uh, completion to have a working document because you, you're not then scrambling uh, to get something together co- that's coherent if and when you enter talks with a potential buyer. And I think it gives the impression that your program is really in a state of control, even, even in that early phase. Absolutely. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's just a more conscientious way to be running your program. And um, I think, you know, uh, a savvy buyer would be able to recognize that. Yeah. And it's unfortunately acceptable in many circles that we see it all the time that a report, you know, when any activities can be created after the activity has concluded, maybe even by folks that weren't involved with the activity. A good point. I think one of the things that we've had a call to do in recent months more than we had in the past is to come into a program that is working towards a filing date. And some of the more forward-thinking conscientious clients, they want a gap assessment done of their program to really give them an outline of how ready they are for their filing. We've got two camps, right? You have one that says it's time to file quick, get everything out of the closet, stick it in the submission. There's another that says, okay, we have time here and we want to really get a true understanding of where potential gaps or risks may be to our filing. So when you come in and you represent the technical SME, and let's say we're moving towards uh, an NDA, what do you look for? Because, uh, you know, we talked about your technical experience, but you've got quite a bit of experience in supporting filings as well. Um, working closely with regulatory to develop those technical sections to review against the source information. What do you look for in terms of a program and robustness? Regulations are regulations, but as we all know, sometimes they're they're a bit broad in scope. But now you've got someone like yourself that comes in with experience. What's your approach to something like that? Well, for that, w- one thing that uh, I would immediately check for is uh, whether or not one thing you can't get around it is, and it could really delay your program is uh, if you have the appropriate stability information. Uh, I would immediately check to see if the packaging configuration they have finalized and the formulation they have finalized and the process they have finalized is in fact what's up on stability and what they're basing their expiry dating on. Uh, the reason the reason that would be the first thing to look at is because it takes time to acquire stability data. It takes time to make batches and put them on stability. Any, any remediation of a, of a gap there is going to take some time. So that's, that's what I would look for immediately. Another thing to look for, I would look for immediately is whether or not there's any indication of uh, stability issues with the, with, the, with the formulation or the dosage form. Because that's something that, you know, once you file is going gonna, is gonna to be very expensive to remediate. Um, you're probably looking at refiling at that point, unless it's a very minor adjustment to the formulation. So what I'm what I'm looking for are are things that will take a long time to remediate if they're not there. 
some other things are, you know, have the process control parameters been appropriately characterized? Do they make sense for the drug product and uh, the process that's being used to make it? For example, you know, if it's a direct blend process, you know, is the blender, the blend time, the order of addition, uh, have those all been looked at and shown to be repeatable and uh, reproducible? So Q, it sounds like you, I probably from the beginning, you're going to want to talk about with any team or CMO or whomever, you want to talk about like a, a basic documentation plan, right? You mentioned a few of the steps. So, um, you know, coming back from it, from the regulatory angle, you know, during examinations, reviews, you know, any products missing any well-documented explanations for decisions or any of the historical chain of events, you know, missing, missing things like that create, creates uh, issues, creates red flags with the reviewers, right? So not, not having a plan sounds like you're, you know, you're kind of on the wrong track before you even get to the development port. So can you tell us a little bit, you know, maybe about a documentation plan, you know, maybe when that, when that timing is, you know, when that needs to be updated, key things, you mentioned a few already, key things that you want to get in there, you know, to consider even prior to, um, you know, when the timing comes up. Sure. Uh, You know, at the kickoff of a project, probably somebody's going to be making a Gantt chart that lays out in broad strokes the entire timeline uh, from, you know, early phase potentially through filing. And some of the milestones along that path are uh, excipient compatibility, finalizing your formulation, end of phase two, and uh, potentially end of phase three. So at those points, I think it's important to at least have uh, a report or a risk assessment documenting the data that was collected and the conclusions, the decisions that were made based on that data for the, for the development program. You can have, like I, like I said before, it's common to have your data in disparate reports up until the time of filing. Uh, it's better to have them consolidated into a coherent story. But, um, you know, some of, the, some of the milestones, again, would be documenting your formulation decisions. So, you know, excipient compatibility or formulation report, a process development report that says, you know, why we chose this process over that. Ideally, a, a characterization report that um, outlines what your critical process parameters are um, and demonstrating you can consistently make the product. Okay. Any, any thoughts on product development reports and sections of the module three, for instance, there's a lot of different conformance information, pretty much the story behind the story in P2, the pharmaceutical development report. Any key areas to think about there? For me, it would be product specific. A formulation, for example, let's say let's say a formulation has some sort of excipient that's not commonly used. I would look in the P2 sections to clearly explain the rationale and the data upon which the decision to use this, you know, non-standard excipient was based. It's it's really product specific. That's a great point, though. That's a reviewer's perspective. You'd said, like, if you were looking at this from a reviewer's perspective, you would go right to that or look for that. A good reviewer would do that. Yes, I mean, some reviewers, are, it seems, can be primarily just you know, box checking. You know, have take less of a holistic um, risk based approach, which is kind of the has has been the trend for some time now. I try to focus on, you know, what is actually important for this particular product and has that been uh, explored appropriately? Because you never really know the type of reviewer you're going to get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it's science-based. Yes, absolutely. At the minimum, you need to check the boxes. You need to have uh, the particular issues that are known for that type of formulation, for that type of drug product, for that type of uh, packaging configuration. You You need to have those issues pretty well covered because um, you can expect them to get scrutiny. See, and I think that's a really strong point. And that's where 
you know, you can have a technical author take source information and plug it into the section as per the guidelines. However, you really need to make sure you need that technical input and oversight in conjunction with regulatory to make sure that the story holds water, to make sure it stands up. And, and I think that point you just raised is a prime example as to why you do something like that. That's very helpful. Thank you. All right. I have, uh, I think I have a phone call. Hold on here. Okay. I think it's uh, Miranda Parascondola. She's calling and she has a question for you. Oh, she does. That's interesting. Uh, did she relay what that was or? No. Okay. Welcome, Miranda. So actually, so Q, I had a few questions for you, but you guys kind of laid them out. Um, I was going to ask you if they weren't doing a living development report, compiling it together, piecemealing it from somebody's notebooks, somebody's notes, um, the previous owners, is that something that they should look at doing? Um, so if they're, they have all of their pieces in, in different ways, should they pull the puzzle piece together for the agency to review? I mean, it's, it's rare for the agency to sort of um, outside, outside of a, for example, a pre-approval audit where they show up at your door um, of your manufacturing facility and ask to see those things. It's, it's rare for an agency to request source docs. Uh, but I absolutely do think that, you know, at the at the minimum, if you're not going to have a working development report, what you need to have is a, a, a working document repository with a with a with a file structure that can be easily followed so that you can go back and know what you have and piece together uh, a report or a submission from that. OK, that was easy. Now we get to the my fa- my favorite part. We, ch- we switch this up all the time. It's called the lightning rounds. Q has like, you know, substantial experience in the manufacturing facilities, Teva, and was it King as well? Yeah, I I worked at uh, Rhone Poulenc, Roar, before it was Aventis. I worked at uh, Teva for quite a few years. Uh, I worked for uh, a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson called Alza, and then back to a company called Alpharma, which was acquired by King, which was acquired by Pfizer, Um, and then... Teva again before uh, getting into the consulting game full time. So, in uh, in spirit of the lightning round, we can ask you any technical question about solid orals process development, anything like that. Any any just trends you've seen in the last six months, even with the um, lack of travel and you know the kind of culture change in, in in the world. Actually, Brian probably can ask better questions technically though. So. I'll save my one last one for the end, but Brian, any, any questions you had about solid orals that you always kind of wanted to know, or maybe just you heard a lot and you just want a different opinion or see what Q's opinion is? Yeah, no, I, I think I do. I have a couple. So can you explain to me the term friability and what it means in tablets? I, I worked a little bit with it and it's something that, that um, I don't know a lot of people know much about it, but it's a, it's typically an IP. I mean, it's an in-process control typically, right? Yeah. Um, so friability is just a measure of uh, your the erosion of your tablets um, during what would be expected to be normal handling. So in order to measure friability, what you do is take a set number of tablets, it's common to do 30, put them in a device that's going to tumble them for a specified period of time at a specified rate. Then you dust them off after that and you reweigh them. Ideally, they weigh pretty close to what they weighed before you tumbled them. But uh, if your tablets uh, are prone to erosion, you're going to get more weight loss. The edges on the tablets are going to chip off. You're going to lose that material. Typically, you want your friability to be below 1% or 2%. 
it's it's particularly important if tablets are going to be uh, pan coated because during a pan coating process they're tumbled extensively. They're tumbled, you know, usually for an hour or more is pretty common. So you don't you don't want to be uh, rounding off your 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 square tablets in the process of coating them. You know, it's it's just a measure of how durable your tablets are, how resistant they are to erosion during handling. When you talk about tablet manufacture, what is and how are coatings applied? Because I hear that term all the time. Um, and when you look at a tablet and you pull it out of a jar, there's, there's several coatings and thickness and things like that. How is that done? The most common way is, uh, and, and there's some variations on this theme, but the, the most common way is pan coating. Essentially, what pan coating is, you can think of a pan coater as a, similar to a clothing dryer. So you put the tablets in. It's like similar to a clothing dryer with a, uh, with, with a, with a spray uh, function inside. So imagine putting tablets into a clothing dryer and then inserting your arm and spray painting them as they tumble in the dryer. What the dryer does is, I mean, as, as they're tumbling, there's warm air coming in one side. You're applying spray to the tablets. So they're moving through this zone where uh, a mist of spray is applied. And, you know, over time, by moving through this zone where the spray is applied and then they're blown with hot air and then sprays applied and blown with hot air. Over time, over you know the course of an hour or so and many, many tumbles in, in the machine, the tablets are evenly coated without clumping together, yeah. Uh, so you want to fine-tune your spray rate, you want to fine-tune your inlet air temperature, you want to fine-tune your gut-to-bed distance, and your atomizing air pressure, which is you know something that controls the, your droplet size. It's very important. Too big of droplets aren't going to dry fast, and they could lead to tablets sticking together, and you could have like one big piece of granola almost inside your coater. There's also uh, a less common technique that's more antiquated would be pan coating, but using um, sugar by hand. Um, actually, you know, some over-the-counter products are, are coated with a process similar to this, where uh, an operator actually ladles in some sort of uh, coating liquid that's typically, uh, you know, sugar sugar solution with some sort of colorant or a pacifier like titanium dioxide. And um, the tablets are, are tumbled um, without the airflow. It's more of a operator technique-driven method, and it's you know something that it's the old way. It used to be done you know decades ago. Literally sugar coating it. Okay, I've got I've got sugar, one more sugar in the pan. That's Go right. Ahead. Yeah, you can t- keep going, Brian. You're in a roll. In your experience, what is the wackiest drug product? dosage form you've come across where you scratched your head and said, well, how did whoever thought this was a good idea? So what's the wackiest dosage form you've come across? I've come across a situation where uh, I was working on a rheumatoid arthritis product, working on a generic version of it, and the innovator filed for pediatric exclusivity for a rheumatoid arthritis product, which I thought was kind of interesting because I didn't even know that was possible for, uh, you know, uh, small children to have rheumatoid arthritis, but <laughs> that would be one. In terms of in terms of dosage form, I, I I worked on some pretty unique orally disintegrating tablets made by a process known as a, a, a triturate machine. Essentially, they're they're um, the formulation is primarily um, uh, synthetic sugars you know, with, with other excipients in there. And what you're doing is almost making something like a, a Smarties candy that's going to be able to dissolve in, in, in the mouth uh, relatively quickly. Um, that was, it was a unique process. You don't see it very often. Um, and uh, 
that's probably the, the, the wackiest dosage form because those tablets were uniquely uh, brittle and friable. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're made to dissolve very fast in your mouth before you even swallow them. But yeah, that, that would be one. So handling, handling was a problem. Yeah, okay. Yeah, who doesn't like Smarties, by the way? They're like, they, they rival and they compete. They, they can go up against Reese's Cups. I'm I, just saying, I, right? Yeah, they've been around. Yeah, I know. Different formulation, yeah. obviously. Different formulation. <laughs> You're talking about the Smarties, the stuff that you draw on chalkboards, right? No, it's a, it's oh a my pure sugar. Goodness. No. Pure sugar delicious. That's what it reminds me of is chalk. <laughs> no. No, anything except oh, that. Nico wafers. Nico wafers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I used to work next to the Nico plant in Boston and the original Nico plant. No. Yeah, if you want to settle your kids down, if you're busy there, just give them a couple of Smarties and you'll see. Yeah. yeah. No, we're, we're sweet tart family. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Yeah. All right. I have a question, uh, Q, actually. And I, I grew up in the era of, uh, uh, let's see, uh, quality by design. I almost forgot how it, was, how it was pronounced. QBD, right? And I was never really familiar with the drug product side because I never worked in manufacturing and um, Big Pharma like created this. Actually, some, some guy named uh, Kaoru Ishikawa. Do you know him? Ishikawa diagrams? Yes. Yeah, fish, fishbone diagrams. So there's like myths and facts about this. I mean, I, I, can you talk to us about a little bit? I mean, I'd like to know just like friability. What, what is this fishbone diagram? Well, I guess it, it's a way to break down contributing factors to a particular output you have. So, you know, for, let's say, tablet uh, dissolution, um, you could break, there's many factors that could affect tablet dissolution. And, you know, if you're having an issue with uh, the dissolution of your tablets, you might want to prepare an Ishikawa diagram to try to steer you where to look, steer you where to try to diagnose the problem. The d- dissolution would be the, the end of the fishbone diagram, and you would think, okay, what aspects of tablet production go into dissolution? Well, broadly speaking, you have at le- you could at least say formulation, process, storage conditions, and then you can break those down further into, uh, for the formulation, you can break it down into uh, degree of disintegrant, degree of super disintegrant, granulation endpoints, um, bind- binder selection. For the process, you could, you could come up with... Um, uh, in-process disintegration as a, as a proxy for uh, your early dissolution time points. You could come up with compression force, tablet hardness uh, as contributing factors from the process side into dissolution. Uh, from the storage, you could you know look at hot and cold conditions and packaging configurations and uh, how your dissolution varies with those things. You know, you applying prior process knowledge once you once you break down the contributing factors, you know. As far as makes sense, uh, you apply prior process knowledge to rule some things out and concentrate what you think could be the causes of the issue. After going through this exercise, you could say, okay, we think that uh, from the formulation standpoint, we think that the amount of the degree of super disintegrant is important. And from the process standpoint, we think the hardness is important. And from the, in the, from the storage aspect, we think the uh, amount of um, moisture permeability in the packaging is is important. You would evaluate. You would do further work to you know demonstrate which of those uh, things is contributing to your issue and the degree to which they're they're contributing. Okay, so so like other industries, you know, using it for your to design your product, you know, look for to 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 weed out quality defect prevention. You know, to me again, it, it looks like a fish fish's skeleton. You know, and the problem problems at the head and the causes for the problem. 
or throughout the body. And um, it was it was always interesting to me. Um, Brian, any other technical last last minute jokes? Uh, no, I'm actually not not that funny. Any zingers? You have any yogiisms? No, I really don't have. I, I'm not that funny. Um, yeah, like I said, once anyhow, like a clown. <laughs> After Jim quoted Yogi Berra, it's all kind of downhill from there. I don't know. Um, right. No, I think right. this was really good. I, I was very helpful to me to yeah. hear you go through this. Well, thanks. It was fun. So now more, more than in the past, the development reports and conformance sections of your pharmaceutical development pieces you know, afford the opportunity to craft discussions for the reviewers, put forward arguments, talk about explanations and justifications in the program. Uh, so that the supportive data can be highlighted and less than stellar findings uh, can be put in perspective. These reports and these sections uh, influence the perspective of their viewers more than the past. So if it's preferable to tackle some of these difficult issues head on rather than wait for reviewers to notice the problematic uh, data during the review. So once again, Kyriakos Mikolaros, live from Brooklyn, New York. I forgot to mention that. Still haven't been able to visit you. Obviously, the last couple of months have been different, right? But thanks so much. Uh, you know, We appreciate it. And we look for you to come back. On our next episode, we'll have uh, no other than the famous Headley Reese, uh, author of many, many books. Uh, one of them I think I wrote a chapter for. Uh, Headley brings a lot of information and history and experiences on supply chains. Uh, this is definitely one you're going to want to check out. Uh, Headley will be live from the UK. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.